Welcome to Evangelistic Center so, Once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you, and I hope that I can convey this message well. Um, it's been one of those weeks, you know, where it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily hard, but I just couldn't figure out where the Lord was wanting me to go, so I spent a lot of time at my local coffee shop kind of just sitting there and staring through the window, and uh, it was hard. And I believe God has given me something to, to share with you also. If you guys would just keep your, your hearts and minds open. And, and uh, I, I always like to caveat my messages with, <laughs> you ever feel like you're telling some, somebody something that they already know? I'm really good at doing that. I repeat a lot of my stories. And that's, that's kind of what today feels like, right? I, like, I might be probably giving out information that most of you already know. But how many of us need reminders? Hello? My favorite thing is to, hey to my phone and tell my phone to remind me of things. And people make fun of me all the time. You have to remind, tell it to remind you of that? Well, yes, I do. So we all need reminders, right? We all need reminders of even the simplest of things. My, my son, oh, he's not in here. My son, he has, he has woken my wife and I up just to tell us that he loves us. And, of course, yes, that's very sweet, but at the time, it, right. <laughs> Let me caveat this, too. He's up at like 5.30, 6.30 in the morning, every morning. My son is just, he's just an early riser. And he wakes us up to tell us that he loves us. And I tell him, Christopher, thank you. <laughs> and it's hard to say thank you then, but I need that reminder. I think everybody needs, needs those reminders, right? And so that's what today is. So to, I titled my message today, The Upside Down Kingdom. And I titled it that because I believe that the recognition of the Lord's authority, God's authority over the earth and God's authority over us is very relevant, right? We all see it, we know it, we feel it. How many of you have ever been convicted? Hello, I, I mean, if, if you're not raising your hand, you're lying in church, right? That's what the authority of the Lord is, this, 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 this un, unmistakingly feeling of a necess, necessity to turn from our ways and turn to his, Right? And I believe that this, this kingdom that we're talking about, this upside-down kingdom, I believe that the moment that we saw it established, it was one of the most profound and greatest mo moments for me in my revelatory understanding of the Word of God. When, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, things changed. Things changed. And I don't think we fully recognize it because we didn't live in that time. And it's hard sometimes when you read a Bible to picture it in your mind but the first thing that, one of the first things that Jesus does after he's born and after he grows up and he's 33 or so and he starts his ministry, the first thing that he says you'll find in Matthew 4, 17. And you can kind of follow along with me because I'm going to stay in Matthew 4, 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to kind of stay there the whole time. I'll jump around just a little bit, but I have a lot of scripture and most of it is in that spot. I'll go to Luke one time and then I'll go to Corinthians one time, but I may just read those to you. But that moment that Jesus steps onto the scene, the first thing that he says from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. Repent. Turn from your ways. That's all repent means. Repent means to turn from the way that you're living and turn towards him. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that word at hand actually means a closeness. That word at hand, mean, that word at hand means nearness. It means close. So when he says that he's at hand, it, it means the king of the kingdom is here. And now, directly, 
he was called to be the king of the Jews, right? We know that at this period of time that he came specifically to proclaim the good news to the Jews at that time. We all know that the Gentiles, all of that stuff, right? But he comes and he's proclaiming that he's here to repent and turn from your ways. And it's, it, is a, it is the fulfillment of many, many, many prophecies that when he steps onto the scene. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of the kings of, of that age are looking around and going, wait, they're saying this is the guy? The guy that was born in the, in the, in the manger? The, the guy that was born where, where, the, where the, the animals sleep? This is that guy? There's no glowing light. You know, my, my kingdom's not being invaded. This is the guy? Matthew 4 sets a tone for a new king stepping onto the scene. Little did they know that he didn't operate on the level that the kingdoms of that age operated. He operated on an upside-down kingdom. The standards that existed in the kings of that age were standards of, there was a new king being born, I'm going to send out soldiers to Bethlehem to try to find him and kill him. So they killed all the firstborn. So that they could stay in authority. Think about that. Think about if, if the president of the United States found out that there was a large group of Americans. It doesn't matter what president is, Democrat, Republican. I'm not talking about it in that way. I just want to give an example. Think about that. If the president of the United States found out that, that 300,000 of the three, or 300 million of the 350 million Americans are rising up and there's this one guy trying to take power, we'd cause all-out war. We'd have a civil war in our hands. Because somebody is trying to steal authority from somebody else. And the, 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 the real understanding here is that when you say president, president doesn't have ultimate authority. But when you say king, king has ultimate authority. There is no other authority besides the king. Matter of fact, in, a lot of, in that day and age, those kingdoms existed on a playing field that if you stood, if this rings, I'm going to be mad. You stood down here, and the king stood up there. And if you ever brought yourself to where your head was above his, they'd cut off your head. And you know that. You know why that was? Because this is where we make our decisions. This is where our authority exists. This is where we make the decision that I'm going to take over. The kingdoms of that world existed on a different playing field. And God knew that. God knew that in that day and age, that the people of the, of, Jeru of the Jews, that they didn't just need, they didn't need the Savior because the saving comes later. And that's a, that's a very important happening in the Bible. That's a very important, that's the most important thing. We wouldn't be here if he didn't die on a cross. We wouldn't be here if he didn't raise again. The three-day work of Jesus is the most important story in the Bible. But when Jesus steps onto the scene, he paints a picture of something that oftentimes as Christians we forget about, and that is his authority. That is his kingship. And he goes on from there from Matthew 4.17 to 4.23, and he preaches the gospel to the people. Matthew 4.23, I think I put it in my notes. I thought I did. Matthew 4.23 says this is the first time that he's, he's preached the gospel. He says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, every disease, and every affliction among the people. Now that gospel, that gospel simply means good news, and what he's proclaiming is the good news of his kingdom, which that word kingdom means, I can't, I'm going to try to say it right, bicelia, which just simply means the reign and realm of God. 
It means God's authority over us. We don't have to, we don't have to try to read into that word too much. It simply means his reign over our lives. See, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, we, we had yet to see this, but if you read in John 18, 37, which I don't know if I, I, get, I have a lot of scripture today, so I'm just going to read through this. It says, in John 18, 37, when he, this, is, this is going up to when he's ready to be convicted. Jesus says this, Pilate is talking to him, and he said to him, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That, who, that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So there's this process of looking at Jesus, right? When we see him, we see him as, as a baby in a manger when it comes to Christmas. We see him as a, as a, as a man on a cross dying for our sins. We see him, we see him in, in all of these different mosaic type points of view where we can picture him as God's son and all of these different things. But oftentimes, his, his authoritative crowned king power is is not reflective to us you know why because we don't like being reigned over i don't like being reigned over then the fleshly man does not desire to have a king amen can we agree to that when jesus steps on the thing on the scene it wasn't like any other king it wasn't like a king who goes to war and takes authority it wasn't like a king who who uh whose family is, is a lineage of kings, and it's just his time. Dad died, and so now the next king comes into place. See, what happened is Jesus' kingship is, is, is a standard of God's fulfillment. And what I mean by that is, is there were literally, and I, I'm going to read through some of them, and I, didn't, I don't think I made slides for most of these. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 1.22 is a fulfillment of, of the virgin birth. Matthew 2.15, and he, he remained there until the death of Herod. This, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of, his, I, excuse me, out of Egypt I called my son. And there are these constants throughout Scripture. I, can, I could read some more that maybe you can put in your notes and read later. Matthew 2.23, Matthew 4.14. All of these are fulfillments of prophecies that were, were, were put out in the prophets of old. So we knew that this man was coming, but at that day and age, they didn't have the Gospels to understand that his kingdom was not of this world. They didn't have the Gospels to understand that his kingdom wasn't an an invading kingdom that takes over the kingdoms that are natural. So they didn't know this. So all of a sudden, when he steps on the the scene, at that point in time, in that that point of the Bible, what happens is, is the kings of that era think, he's here to take my spot. And there's this fear, and there's this, this doubt, and there's, there's all of these different things that, that rise up. It goes on to talk about, the, Matthew 4.14 is, is talking, about his, his, uh, talking about John. The beginning of this discussion, it furthers the discussion on the nature of the kingdom of God. Because once he goes from there, he goes on, and, and in Matthew 5, if you guys want to turn your Bible, that's where I'll probably be most of, the, most of today. In Matthew 5, it's called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, God, or Jesus, God, lays out this nature by which the kingdom is operated under. This nature is not the nature of the kingdoms of that era. It's not the nature of of, of people naturally. But he starts in Matthew 3 by saying, Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let me, let me double back real quick. He's not just talking to everybody. He's actually just talking to his disciples when he's saying this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You gotta, you, one, thing, one thing that happens with, with the Bible sometimes, I think we forget to read it from a place of, of what's happening in that moment. Right, we forget to put ourselves in the disciples' seat. Excuse me, in the disciples' seat, where we can hear and see Jesus as He is, because the reality of Jesus at that moment and what He's teaching to them, there was no reflection like we have now. Right, we have the entire Bible to read through and understand His nature, understand His character, understand His purpose. See, at that moment, they were still waiting for a lot of things to be fulfilled. He had yet to be crucified, obviously. He had yet to fulfill a lot of prophecies that were were getting ready to come. So when they're hearing these words be spoken, they're thinking, the poor in spirit are not blessed at all. What are you saying? And when he talks about these, when he talks about those who mourn being comforted, sure, yes. When I'm sad and unhappy, sure, my my family, the people, yeah, they'll comfort me. No, we're talking about God. So the, the nature of, of these particular scriptures, blessed are the meek for their sh- they shall inherit the in kingdom of God. The meek in those days got trampled on because they didn't, they didn't operate on the same playing field. The meek, you, you, had, you had to put yourself first in those days, in that day and age. So, the, so blessed are the meek. None of, none of what, what, I'm, what I'm really getting at is that none of these understandings really make sense. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was kind of a peacemaker. I didn't like having enemies. I didn't like having people that were mad at me. And I got picked on for being that way. I got... Man, I probably got, I got into so many fights because the moment they realized that I was trying to be soft, they would immediately attack it, right? Peacemakers are not people that, that necessarily are popular in this day and age, right? You go into a Facebook debate and say, hey, guys, be nice. You shut up, right? Like immediately. Has anybody ever tried to do that? Guys, just think about this. You're both right. You're arguing. How many times have you thought that? You guys are arguing just a difference of opinion. You're not going to convince. And then you go in there and stop arguing, stop fighting, and nobody agrees. I'm going to skip over. It goes on in Matthew 5:13 to, to tell, he's telling his disciples, you are the light of the world. In you there is no darkness, right? And then 5:17 happens. And this is when all of those things that were all of the blessed are those, all of that stuff, kind of everything now is starting to make sense because now Jesus is speaking to something that in that time and era they knew a lot about, and that was the law. Because if you were a Jewish kid, you were raised to understand the law. If I'm not mistaken, there was like six, there's like 600 and something laws out there. It, I, don't, I don't recall, I always forget the name, so I don't want to say it wrong, but one time I was, I was in Atlanta, and I, I went somewhere, I, I went somewhere with my, my best friend, and he was going, actually he was going to the bank. And there was a gentleman standing in line at the bank. This was, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, so a long time. And he had, he had these strings hanging from uh, his, his pants. 
and you could see him hanging down. And he had a, a yarmulke on, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. And I respectfully asked him, I said, I said, sir, what are the, I, I, I kind of knew what they were. I knew they were a symbol of, of, of some sort of Jewish heritage. And I said, sir, what are those? And he told me, he said, these strings are to remind me of all the laws of God. And immediately I remembered the number of laws, and there's like 600 and something, right? But there's, there's specifically to the law in, in general, there is 10 laws that we know a lot about, right? And I think Pastor made a joke of people able to recite all 10 of them, the Ten Commandments. Can anybody do that? You could do it, do it. Sing a song. Yes, do it. Now, how often, <laughs> I had to put you on the spot. Yes, yes, take a vow. You deserve that. I, I had to put, I had, and I know, I know the live stream people didn't get to hear that. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll have her sing. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. But I, I did that because I, I can't, I don't remember. I remember like, you know, don't murder, don't covet. All, I remember a lot of them, but I don't, I, I don't remember them like that. But Jesus is, is talking here in Matthew. Thank you, Samantha. That was awesome, by the way. And it, Jesus is talking here in Matthew 5, 17. He gets to this point in the Beatitudes when he begins to express this understanding of the law. This, this, he, he's, let, let, me, let me step back for a second here. He's genuinely speaking to the people of that era, something that they know well. They know it so well that they've, They've read in the Torah all of the men before them that were unable to keep it. All of the men that came before them that, that succeeded in, in, in keeping the law and failed in keeping the law. That could not live to the standard of morality that God had set in place. So they knew. And then Jesus starts to say something that if he said in front of other people, probably could have got him killed in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, it says this in Matthew 5, 17. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfilling, fulfilling something is, is to, 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 to meet a standard. It's, it's to, it's to, to, to if, if I had a need of $101.97 and someone walked up to me and handed me $101.01, penny, they would not have fulfilled my need. They come close, but they didn't fulfill it. Fulfilling something is, is meeting it to ex, its exact purpose and need. So Jesus, being this person, is, has come onto the scene, showed up, proclaimed himself as, as, as the son of God. He's the king of the Jews, preaches the kingdom, stands before men, and then tells them that all that you've learned throughout your life, I am the fulfillment of those things. All of the law that you have been incapable of following, all of the law that exists in this right-side-up kingdom where, where man is, is forced and, and, 
and nitpicked at for following the law, keeping their hair a certain way and, and offering sacrifices a certain way and doing this and doing that. All of these, these laws that were meant to make man moral so that he could in some way or another approach God, now one single man steps onto the scene and says, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the reflection of who my father is. I, I'm showing you that you now have access to him through me. And of course, he had yet to die, so people don't get this, the, the full reflection of what that actually looks like. We know that the three-day work of Jesus truly opens the door for all of us, but the reality of who Jesus is when he steps on the scene is he's offering a perspective of morality, of truth, of honor, of grace, and it all exists inside of this upside-down kingdom. It goes on in Matthew 5, 21, and I don't know how much of this I'm going to read. I, like I said, just, just kind of follow along with me. I'm reading out of the ESV. It, it, it starts to, he starts to give an understanding of this reflection and, and this fulfillment of the law. And he's actually kind of giving new rules and new standards. And he says in Matthew 5, 5 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. So if you were offering your gift to, at, an, at the altar and, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you, you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. It's, it's really funny that I say that Jesus steps into the scene and says he's the fulfillment but now he offers another reflection to that Exodus 21 law of do not murder. He offers this, this separate reflection of, hey, I know murder meant murder before, but now I'm telling you that even if you get angry, it's kind of a reflection of what murder is already. And, and in that reflection, how many, okay, I'm going to make you guys raise your hand. How many of you have been angry at somebody? I'll raise two hands. I got some people in this room that have been angry. Also have gone to church. I'm just looking at like there. Well, I, I pointed at Rebecca because I've had me. I was thinking anyway. And then I got my wife. I've definitely made my wife. I probably made my wife mad yesterday. <laughs> Y'all's gonna say, wait. Okay, I gotta remember what the Bible said. We gotta fix this right now. If you say you're mad at me now, we gotta fix it now. <laughs> I know. I know. But there's, this, there's this, this, uh, this kind of picture, and Jesus offers another reflection of what anger actually looks like, or what, what murder looks like, and it's reflection to anger. And he's offering this perspective that, in some ways, if you think about it, makes the law even harder to follow. Because now he's saying that, that even just getting angry is, 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 a, is a part, is, is, you're breaking that law. And it goes on in Matthew 5.27, it, it says this, and this is a reflection of, of, of do not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with their heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose 
one of your members, then your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Again, another reflection of what is a more extreme perspective of our impossibility to follow these rules and regulations that have been set in place. And I'm getting somewhere. I, I don't want you guys to think that I'm just, I'm just showing you how hard it is to, be, to live moral in this world. I, I don't want you to think that. I promise you, if you bear with me, we're going to get to a point that will, that will change us, that will hopefully shape us and remind us more so that when we walk out of here, we are capable. It goes on in, in Matthew 5.38 to talk about oaths. One of my favorite ones is this, because I just had to talk to my kids about this one, and I'll read it to you, and I'll tell you the story about my two, my two boys. Matthew 5.38 says this, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I'm laughing because, anyway, I won't tell that story. I'm looking at my wife because she knows what I'm thinking about when it comes to borrowing. Uh, my boys, this is my fault. I, I, uh, and I'm not trying, I promise I'm not trying to be all sad and somber. I didn't grow up with a dad. So I grew up with a mom. So I was really, I was kind of an a, a emotional kid. I was a little bit soft around the edges. And, and luckily, I grew up in a pretty rough town. So it kind of brought out the, the man in me, if you will. It kind of forced me to, right? My wife tells me all the time that, that Stockton is dirty, rotten, all these bad things. But it's, it's home to me, right? And so I grew up without a dad. So I never really had a, an authoritative figure to kind of kind of punch me in the shoulder and say, you know, rub some dirt on it and get over it. I had grandparents that would do, grandpas that would do that, but, but I've done that a lot with my boys, probably a little bit too much. And uh, <laughs> my boys one day, they were in there fighting. And this was the other day, actually. This was like Friday. They were in there like fighting. When I say fighting, like fighting bad. Oh, party lights. <laughs> I don't mind that. Uh, my boys are in there, like, fighting. They're wailing on each other. And I got second. I'm going to tell us two stories. And, and, and one of them punches one, and one starts crying, and then they start going at it. And I, I actually was literally studying for my sermon, and, and I was re literally reading this as I hear them start crying. And I said, well, I guess this is a good time to talk to them about turning the other cheek. So I called my boys into me, and I, and I read that to them, and I said, what do, you, what do you guys think that means? Don't hit back. I said, why do you think that it says that? Well, because we're not supposed to hit. I, said, I, I told my boys, I said, the hitting isn't the problem. It's the fact that you got driven to hit. You didn't stop yourself from going there in the first place. I said, does your brother make you mad? And they both very much so said yes. I said, does your sister make you mad? Yes. I said, have you ever stopped yourself from hitting your brother and sister? Yes. I said, that, that's what that means. I said, it, it means to, to turn the other way. It means to remind them that, hey, I'm your brother and I love you. Another story I have about kind of reflective to this, and I'm a little bit ahead on my notes, so I'm just, I'm just kind of sharing with you some funny stories about my family. My, uh, my son, Zechariah, he, he's ornery. And I think everybody in here knows he, he's ornery. 
but he's a sweet, if you, I say Henri, but I promise you that boy, if you're ever sad in front of my son, like, and he can tell it, he's going to come give you a hug. It doesn't matter if he knows you or not. And uh, one day we get a call from the principal, Zechariah had been in a fight. And I didn't even, I didn't really know how to deal with it because he, the, the principal tells me one story and the story is that Zechariah punched the kid in the nose and made his nose bleed. My son's a little bit too, you know, he's a little too rough for his own good. And I said, well, I didn't quite know what to do with it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to him. And, and of course, as a parent, I, maybe this is the wrong way to go about it, but I asked him, what's the story? I said, son, what's the story? What happened? And he's crying because he thinks he's in trouble. He's like, He's like grabbing the belt out of my drawer. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, but he's like, he's like ready. Like he knows life, life is not good. He's in trouble. Well, long story short, he, he comes home and he says, well, dad, this, this kid was, was picking on me and my friend. And he, and he started picking on my friend and my friend. I think he said his friend was like getting sad and almost like maybe crying a little. And he said, and then he turned to me and started picking on me and I just slugged him. And he didn't say slugged, but he said, so I punched him. And I said, oh, okay. He said, am I in trouble? I said, no, not yet. <laughs> so I'm kind of going against what I just taught them. <laughs> I, I, I understood in that moment what my son was doing. But <laughs> it's a very difficult thing because you want to tell your kid to defend himself. But you want to also teach him that you don't, if you don't have to, don't do it, you know. And so anyway, long story short, he ended up not getting into trouble for that. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of hypocrisy in, in the way that I've taught my kids because I, I made it okay that he punched the kid in the nose but also told them not to hit each other. But I think they'll eventually get the point and understand it. But this, going back to my message, this, this reflection, again, of turning the other cheek and, and giving to the man that sues you, again, this is, these are all things that in this right-side-up kingdom, in the natural world, are, are irrational and make no sense. There are things that, that, if, that if somebody cuts you off in traffic, our natural response is to be frustrated. And trust me, I get frustrated, right? There, your natural response is, is to defend yourself, especially me. You can ask my wife. I don't hold my words back, and that's, that's my crux. I, I really just say what I'm thinking, and I have a really hard time with that. But a lot of that is because of how I was raised. I think, I think turn your other cheek doesn't just mean, you know, don't punch the guy. I think it means when someone says something nasty, it means, I think it means turn the other way and let them say something else. But I have a hard time with this. And this, this, this perspective and reflection of, of turn the other cheek is, is so difficult to, to, to bear out in reality. It's so difficult to, to, to get through because we as, as natural people want to defend ourselves. And again, existent in this right side up kingdom, it does not make sense. There's, it's an impossibility for us as people to live in this world but not of this world in society without being trampled on just for, in the name of Christianity. Right? It's hard. It's not easy. I'm going to step back a little bit and go, go to uh, Matthew 6, or excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm going forward to Matthew 6, 19. I talked about lust and all of those things, but... Matthew 6, 19. See, this is what happens when I don't have my computer, Lindsay. <laughs> they had to borrow my computer this morning. Matthew 6, 19, and I won't read through it for the sake of time, but it talks about storing up for ourselves treasure. 
It says that do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and, neither, and where thieves do not break in and steal. How many of you have a savings account? Don't raise your hand. I have a savings account, right? I think it's fair to, say, to have a savings account, but when we're reliant, when, when our security is in that savings account, I think that's kind of what this is saying. Again, ask the natural world what they think about, about storing up. Ask the natural world what they think about, about having security. Ask the natural world what their reliance is on, on their paycheck and, and how they feel and, and, and all of those things. The natural world will tell you that you need to be secure, that you need to be firm planted. You need to, to have, have, have a, a plan for a future. You need to not follow things blindly. Um, I could tell you right now, I remember, I remember about seven years ago, I had uh, my family, not my family, I, some people around me kind of thought I was crazy. My family and I were crazy because we lived in Atlanta for, after I graduated Bible school, we, we lived in Atlanta for another three years, and we lived in a really bad neighborhood, and uh, needless to say, we didn't have a lot of money. We, I think the first couple years of my kids being born, we lived on 600 bucks a month, and that was paying our rent, too. I mean, it was, it was hard, but genuinely in my heart while we were in Atlanta, all that I wanted to do was do, be where God told me to be, and I had this inward struggle of... <laughs> Because I had been there so long, I had this inward struggle of, I don't want to leave Atlanta. I don't want to leave my home. But I could recognize that doors were starting to close on, on my wife and I, and, and things were changing. And, and so, literally, I, I think my father-in-law, bless his heart, had called me probably 26 times in years prior saying, when are you going to move here? And this is here to Oklahoma. And I had no desire to come here. Uh, again, why would you want to move to a place that's trying to kill you? Oklahoma is trying to kill you. I'll say this every time I speak. Oklahoma is trying to kill you. And I told him, I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. And then eventually, eventually I, I realized that I needed to make a change. And so naturally, I, I made a phone call, and my father-in-law, bless his heart, drove 14 hours and came and picked us up. And I moved, to, I moved here to Oklahoma with 50 bucks in my pocket. I think that's what we had. It was about $50. We probably didn't. Maybe had less than that. I don't know. We had nothing. And again, I, I wouldn't be here without, without family. So, but I, I genuinely in my heart was, was just wanting to go and to be where God wanted me to be, even if it meant living the way that I was living. And again, to the natural world, to the, to the right side up kingdom of this world, it says, well, why would you do that? Why would you follow something that pays you nothing, that gives you zero thanks, that the world thinks is crazy? Why would you, why would you live under that authority. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's difficult sometimes to, to live in this place where we're seeking God and the natural world, the, the right side up kingdom, if you will, looks at us like we're crazy. Looks at us like we, we've got something wrong in our head. Like we we, we, we are following something blindly, like we're following something that, that makes no sense. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. Then why would you serve it? But we know why, right? So I'm getting somewhere. We know why. 
And I think a lot of times when people, when people that are not in the church read the scriptures, they forget to come to scriptures like these in Matthew 6, 625. Matthew 625, they forget to read things like this because to the same degree that God says don't lay up stores in heaven, don't lay up in, in a storehouse in, 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 on the earth, he, he also says this. Did I put Matthew 625 in there? Nope, okay. He also says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You are, not, are you not more valuable than they are? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious for, about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like, the one, like one of these. It, it's very difficult sometimes from the outside perspective to look, to look upon the life of a Christian that, that has faith and that knows that God is truly good in all that he says he is, and then to read scriptures like this and tell people why, and yet again, the, the right-side-up kingdom, it does not understand. You're trusting something that you can't see. You're trusting something that you don't feel. You're following something blindly. You're living in a, in a fantasy world. And yet when you read the scripture like this, and you look at them, they're worried about, and I, I don't mean, I'm not passing judgment on anybody particular, right? I'm just talking about those that are outside of God. When you look at their life, they spend a lot of their life toiling and troubling over what they will eat, drink, wear. Everything is about the next biggest thing that they can have. Everything is about the, the, the house, the boat, the car, the plane, the block. Well, I don't know how many people have a plane, but you get what I'm saying. It goes on in, in Matthew 6.33 says this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. It's very difficult sometimes to, to sit in these pews, to sit facing and hear people share the extreme life that God calls us to live. This, the life where we count the cost and we say, God, you're worth more than anything this world has to offer. And I give you all that I have so that I can live under your authority. Even if it means I don't have anything in my savings account. Even if it means I live in a rat-infested ghetto apartment in, the, in downtown Atlanta. Even if it means living poor. Or even if it means giving all that I have. None of that matters in comparison to serving you. When you read the, the Matthew 13 scripture of love, it talks about love being patient and kind and, and not arrogant and how it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not rude, it's selfish. So it's not selfish, basically, and how it never ends. The world's love is existed on stipulations. The world's love is existent with, I love you if. The right side up kingdom, it, it exists on a playing field where what you can give me is a matter on how much I love you, right? If you can give me something, I love you back. God's kingdom says it doesn't matter if they have nothing to give, but you love beyond what they have or don't have. 
It's a difficult standard to live by. It is a difficult standard to live by. When Jesus steps onto the scene and he begins to preach about his kingship and his authority and his, his under, the understanding of him being somebody who, who lives and dwells on a playing field that is, is not existent in the natural world. And then he begins to share with us the nature by which the king, this kingdom that he is the king of exists. For those in that day and time, it's an impossibility for them to naturally follow it. It is an impossibility for them to live in that playing field. And for two reasons. There was no Holy Spirit. And the three, well, first being Jesus had yet to die and raise again. And there's no Holy Spirit. Because what changes about the reflection of him discussing this kingdom in the natural is that now when he talks about the kingdom, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, they would fight for me. And then it talks about the kingdom being in your midst, in your midst, which means that it lives inside of us. You see, the impossibility of living out the Christian life is only found and only becomes difficult when the king who is king is not king of who he's supposed to be king of. So when we look at our lives and we, when we sit down in our prayer time and, and life is hard and there's need and there's all of these things, when you take a reflection of your own life and if you see and you can't see this nature by which the kingdom exists and you can't see yourself reflecting that, ask yourself one question as I have done probably 50 times this week. Who's the king of my heart? 